0: Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the start of another brand new week here on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. we got a lot to talk about with our panel. So let's get right to introducing everybody and begin the conversation. It's Monday, which means my partner from the AJC is Patricia Murphy, a political reporter and columnist. You read her column, Political Insider, it's in the newspaper on Wednesdays and Sundays. Uh, She also oversees the Jolt along with one of our other panelists, who I'll introduce in just a minute. But first, Patricia, thank you so much for being with us. How are you?
0: Oh, I'm doing great. First of all, I'm so glad to get to be on with Tia because that hardly ever happens. And then, second yep. of all, in our house, we have three days left of fourth grade for my twins. So we're wow. in the final stretch of fourth grade.
1: Oh, congratulations! Are you sending are they <laughs> off for to camp, or are you are taking them for a nice vacation?
0: We have a few things. <clears throat> happening probably not enough. well f- <laughs> the wheels are about to come <laughs> off
2: the wagon.
1: Really. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that's exactly why I asked that question. Um, uh, Tia Mitchell is with us, Washington reporter for the AJC. Tia, you are a regular contributor and uh, on, uh, one of the three authors of the Jolt, which, by the way, people can read at ajc.com. And Tia, not unusually, you are in the middle of all the action right now. As uh, uh, President Biden is back from his overseas trip, he meets with Kevin McCarthy today. They're going to continue trying to figure out if they can come to some compromise on raising the debt ceiling. Um, We're going to talk about that in a little while, but in the meantime, thank you so much for being here, Tia.
3: Well, thanks for having me on. And I was going to say, is it action or inaction?
1: But I guess we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Thank you for pointing that out. Rick Dent is back with us. It's been a while. Rick is a longtime, longtime uh, political insider. He's worked for three different, I always like to point this out, Democratic governors of southern states in Mississippi, Alabama, and also with Zell Miller when uh, Zell was governor of Georgia. Rick was his uh, communications director, his press secretary. And Rick now the vice president of Matrix Communications, a consulting firm that does a lot of government relations work. Hi, Rick. Good morning. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you very much. And King Williams is back with us as well, documentary filmmaker. And uh, King, when uh, we talked a little while before the show started, you've uh, once again begun your blog, which I guess people can get to on Substack. Is that right? Yep. I am kingwilliams.substack.com. Your most recent piece, I think, was on the how the Hollywood writer's strike, or the, the writer's strike in general, might affect production in Georgia, correct? Yes,
2: it is. Um, and I'm really excited that you read it, Bill, at least that you knew about it. So now I feel like a real celebrity.
1: No, I I did read it, as a matter of fact, and I'm always glad that you're on the show with us. All right, let's get right to it. Um, You know, Patricia, we're going to get to the debt ceiling and other important stories, but I think we have to start with this really odd story that was first reported by Peter Baker in the New York Times that you all picked up on in the AJC. Um, The Putin uh, regime has put out its most recent list of sanctioned Enemies of Vladimir Putin. There are 500 people on the list. Um, and included on that list are people here in Georgia who have absolutely nothing to do whatsoever with Russia in any way. Uh, Brad Raffensberger being the uh, top name. We've just learned that Keisha Lance Bottoms is also on the list. And we'll talk about a couple of the other Georgians who are on it as well. Um, they are now forbidden to travel to Russia or to have any financial dealings with Russia. Um, Brad Raffensperger said he was honored to make that list and glad to be recognized by Vladimir Putin. What is this all about, Patricia?
0: Well, so, you know, the United States does have a list of sanctions against uh private Russian individuals, people who are deemed um too close to Vladimir Putin. They're not able to do business uh in the United States, occasionally anywhere in the world. So, it's a very serious um uh financial hit to those people who are mostly oligarchs and um lackeys. Uh however, this list from Putin is has really become sort of a celebrity signifier slash badge of honor in washington and now here in georgia um people show up on this list who have never been to russia we're never going to russia have no money in russia um the one commonality and it's a really tangential commonality when we get into these names is that they have at one point or another been criticized by donald trump or not endorsed in their primary in some cases and so um brad rapensberger uh obviously huge enemy of donald trump's um keisha lance bottoms we wrote about today in the jolt. um, She may seem sort of a less than obvious choice. Um, However, when she was a White House advisor, she did a lot of messaging on the Brittany Griner release from uh, a Russian prison. Um, She also was extremely outspoken against Donald Trump as mayor of Atlanta and once Mm -hmm. said that uh, Donald Trump I'm sorry, did I say Putin? I meant to say Donald Trump. Um, One said that Donald Trump would eat his own children um, if he felt it prudent. So she certainly earned her way onto that list as well.
1: Uh, Tia, one of the Russian Foreign Ministry, as reported by Vigil today, um, said that among the targets on their list were, quote, those in government and law enforcement agencies in America, of course, who are directly involved in the persecution of dissidents in the wake of the so-called storming of the Capitol yet another, uh, uh, link to, uh, Donald Trump, Tia.
3: Yeah. And I think, so as, as you mentioned, this isn't their first list. Their first list was, um, about a year ago, it was June, 2022. And that list was more of a stereotypical Just who's who of American politics. That's President Biden was on the first list, but also a lot of uh, members of Congress. Like the first list was almost like Russia just like opened the paper and whoever's name was in the paper got on the list. So Marjorie Taylor Greene was even on the first list, and I think again the first list was more didn't seem to have a purpose other than naming prominent. Americans. This second list does seem much more targeted to people that they perceive are prominent somewhat, but also that they think has criticized Russia. Um, that being said, there are still some curious names on the list, like Representatives Rich McCormick and Mike Collins. Um, are on the list. They're freshmen, so it's not like they've taken these long-standing stances against Russia. They haven't been in Congress even six months, um, but they both are. They both have said, you know, they support the war in Ukraine. For example, they support Ukraine. Um, so it's I, I don't I don't know how much really went into it, other than them just kind of c- continuing to collect what is now over a thousand names of prominent Americans.
1: Yeah, Rick. Uh, and, and please correct me, if, any of you, if you think I'm wrong. I mean, this is this are sort of silly season, uh, this list of people. Except, except, as we enter yet another presidential campaign cycle, once again, we see the Russians essentially aligning themselves, uh, it, at least indirectly, with Donald Trump as the campaigns get underway.
4: Uh, yeah, especially coming after that report in Washington the last couple of weeks where they said there really wasn't a connection. Uh, you know, when I first heard this, you know, my first thought was, did you know, did Putin confuse his Georgia with our Georgia? Because <laughs> hey, come on, let's let's think about it. Do, do we really believe that Putin knows who the Georgia secretary of state is yeah. I would say most voters in Georgia don't know who the Secretary of State of Georgia is. So, yeah, I mean, we are in really strange times, and we've been there for a few years, and I think it's just going to get stranger.
1: King, uh, let me give you a chance to weigh in before we move on.
2: Uh, There are no boring news weeks in Georgia, and this is just a continuation of that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. all right um it's going to be interesting to see i think i thought uh patricia by the way that the raffensperger people his office had some very creative responses uh to <laughs> to this whole thing in, including as i said uh raffensperger saying i really appreciate them of thinking of, of, of me <laughs> about this so it is what it is uh patricia let's move on um talk just a little bit about Governor Kemp's trip to Israel. He's there for a full week. Greg Bluestein is on that trip with them and has been doing some terrific reporting out of there. And, and here's one of the things I want to ask you all to weigh in on. Um, it, it is not unusual for a Georgia governor to visit Israel, obviously among other countries, as a trade mission. I mean, Israel, obviously as small a country as it is, has um, tremendous technology uh, infrastructure businesses um, and, and other uh, businesses that governors would love to have involved somehow come to Georgia and do business here. But this trip um, is taking on a larger significance because in an hour-long meeting with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu yesterday, apparently Kemp and Netanyahu talked a lot about foreign policy the sort of thing that somebody who's thinking about running for president does to burnish their credentials?
0: Uh, Yes, I would say also, um, I mean, it would be highly unusual, though, for Benjamin Netanyahu and an American governor not to discuss U.S.-Israeli relations. I think that would be kind of a natural opening conversation starter. Um, but as, as far as this is um, meant to be a trade mission, it's very clear that it's much more than that. Otherwise, he wouldn't be uh, visiting holy sites, um, having a lengthy m- meeting with Netanyahu. who also met with the Israeli president. Um, and uh, for Governor Kemp, what's been raised to me as a, you know, obviously a potential weak suit for him if he were to be considered for vice president as vice presidential nominee for the eventual republican nominee um would be his really complete lack of foreign policy experience um that's not nobody would pick a, a southern governor for their foreign policy experience but they do need to be able to be conversant in issues of um kind of world geopolitics and so israel is the first natural place to go it is much much more effective to learn these issues on the ground rather than try to read them in a book, because reading them in the book is pretty much what uh, Sarah Palin did to get ready for her time on the world stage. And that was obviously not successful. So um, I think he went because he uh, could, because he's not a free election. He's not under the gun of a um, of a legislative session, nor a primary. So he's got some flexibility in his schedule. Uh, Israel is a very small trading partner for Georgia. They do have a large tech hub, as you said. So there is some potential there, but I would say um, much more than that, it is really a chance for Kemp to get out and get uh, broader experience than he's had a chance to so far.
1: Yeah, I I want to be careful. Uh, I'm not suggesting that this is a precursor to Trump, deci- I mean, to Kemp deciding he's going to run for president. We, by all accounts, uh, that's not likely to happen. Nevertheless, King, as I said, um, this is the sort of thing that burnishes your national credentials, maybe as a potential vice presidential candidate or moving forward a couple of years down the line to challenging John Ossoff for a seat in the Senate. But King, one of the things that was so interesting about this is um, Netanyahu asked Kemp. He had been briefed, apparently, on the fact that there was a bill uh, that would uh, combat anti-Semitism in the Georgia legislature this past session. It passed the House, but it stalled in the Senate. And uh, Netanyahu uh, wanted to know from Kemp what was going on with that bill.
2: Yeah, when it comes to that, I think it's gonna be interesting now as Georgia politics becomes more nationalized. Um, I do think that for Kemp and everyone else, it's gonna be a position of we have to cross all of our our dot all of our I's and you know, cross all of our T's as we go out and abroad now because Kemp, I think, in a lot of ways is positioning himself not necessarily to be the president, but potentially the vice president coming next year. And you have to have these little things kind of under control and not having an anti-Semite to, Semitism bill passed when you're going to Israel, of all places, it's just not a good look, especially for a future vice president.
3: Yeah, I think I mean, I think Kim Kemp, Governor Kemp is keeping his options open. And we know Kemp is he's very good at doing things in a way he's just very politically savvy. I don't think he gets credit enough for his political savvy, just not just him, but clearly his inner circle. So, you know, he's, he finds a way to do things that come across very natural, but also work very well for the long game. You know, the biggest example is how he was able to like stand up to Trump, but still keep his conservative bona fides intact, which allowed him to easily win reelection. Um, And I can think of other examples, quite frankly, but so to me, this is an example of like, at the end of the day, he gets to say, I'm governor. It's a trade mission. I care about, you know, learning about the Jewish people and the Israeli culture. And so I'm gonna visit these uh, religious sites and I'm gonna religious these, I'm gonna visit these cultural sites. And yes, I do wanna make the most of my meeting with these top officials. So of course I'm gonna talk about foreign policy and it all looks, you know, like a governor just doing his job but he's also building a resume that should he decide to run for president, he's building you know he's giving himself opportunities to be more um to be more prepared and a better candidate. same if he becomes a vice president. We know that he's not going to be a vice president candidate if Trump is the candidate. but you know probably not if DeSantis is the candidate. But if a Nikki Haley or maybe a Tim Scott or some dark horse we're not even talking about right now, then maybe, um, maybe then he might be someone who is a potential vice president, and now he's made put himself in a better position to do so.
1: All right, Rick Dent, let's let's imagine something. You're staffing this visit uh, to uh, uh, to Israel by. Governor Kemp, and there are some real landmines that you've got to be careful about. Among them, as uh, many people real know, because it's been getting such an enormous amount of coverage, uh, Netanyahu has aligned himself with the ultra-Orthodox political factions in the country. He worked for a long time and hasn't given up yet, uh, defanging essentially the Israeli Supreme Court, giving the ultra-Orthodox what they want, which is an opportunity to take power away from uh, the court. There are been massive demonstrations in cities around Israel against this. Netanyahu himself continues under indictment uh, for corruption and for bribery. So there are some potential landmines here. What do you tell your governor about how to deal with all of that on a visit like this?
4: Well, well number one, I think they're doing it. <clears throat> Number two, keep the focus on jobs and the economy, and I'm here working for the people of Georgia. But at the same time, I'm checking off my list. I'm, I'm meeting for the right people. We are talking about both international and state things. And then, of course, visiting the right uh, religious areas as well. <laughs> as well. Y- you know, to me, what is remarkable about this entire conversation is to think how far governor kemp has come from those ads where he's holding a shotgun he's in a truck for his immigration ad at that time i swear not a single person ever looked at him and said you know he might make a good president one day <laughs> and yet and yet look where he is now and i would argue That the moment he took the gamble, and it was a huge gamble to open up this state with COVID, not knowing what would happen, he has been perfect ever since. And that is why he is where he is today. And that is why we're talking about potential vice president or cabinet. It's extraordinary the growth he has made since 2016, 2018.
1: Well, Patricia, I want to get you back in, but I do think we should point out that while Rick is certainly correct that it was brave or, or, or bold, at least, of Governor Kemp to open the state up quickly, um, we did lo- thirty-eight thousand Georgians died of COVID. We had one of the higher death rates in the United States, and and it's interesting that that figure seems to have pretty much been uh, forgotten as we talk about uh, Kemp and. Covid, But that's past news, obviously. It also, obviously, Patricia, did not hurt his national standing. That Kemp, I thought what Rick was going to say, showed a boldness in refusing to go along with Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. That certainly helped put him on the national stage as well.
0: Yeah, it's also, well, first of all, I want to mark the moment that Rick Dent said that Governor Brian Kemp has been perfect since 2020, which is really something. I'm going to have to mark that in my uh, journal tonight. I didn't think I'd see that happen. Um, However, I think um, the decision to open during COVID, as well as the decision uh, to go up against Donald Trump, are two excellent examples of Kemp taking a step. Not knowing what it would do to him politically, particularly in the case with Donald Trump, there was a widespread assumption that it would end his future, his politics, his future in politics, as well as Brad Rappensberger. But that is also really called leadership. Um, Sometimes those leadership decisions blow up in your face, sometimes they play well for you, but taking a step without um, putting your political considerations first is I think what voters crave to see in the public square. And so I think that those steps resonated with people, even who disagreed with him in many cases, particularly with the COVID decision. Um, now he also won over a number of uh, of supporters with that Trump decision who disagree with him on just about everything else. They at least knew they could stand, he would stand with the state of Georgia when it mattered most and when he was at the most political peril. So I think he has gotten a lot of um, credit from voters. Um, in some cases, I don't want to say too much credit, but voters have put to the side his his what has not changed about Brian Kemp, still very conservative on abortion very conservative on guns, um, very conservative on taxes. These are positions that don't fully align with the majority of um, Georgians who you poll on these individual issues, but they do support Brian Kemp and they uh, put him back in office with huge numbers that you don't see um, almost ever. It's really been actually something to cover as as a journalist.
1: King, um, I, I want to bring you into this conversation um, because, I, you know, Patricia just pointed it out. Rick, I think Rick did probably using just a little bit of hyperbole in saying that Kemp has been perfect since he made the COVID decision. Uh, but but, King, of course, what we continue to see with Brian Kemp is that despite how completely conservative his policies are, the six-week abortion ban you know guns everywhere all of this sort of thing he is more palatable to many people uh who consider themselves more moderate maybe uh because of his opposition to Donald Trump and it just strikes me it's fascinating that continues to resonate for him
2: yeah in a lot of ways it feels like this is the recentering of the Republican party and by proxy maybe the recentering of what american political policy is going to look like and what a a political candidate is going to look like. I think about Glenn Youngkin. I think about a lot of the other candidates who are becoming Kemp Light, right? It's Kemp in the four tops, it seems, every time he's he's positioning himself on a new issue. And I think that we're going to see more of that, not less of it, because it's easy to just provide a statement that really has not much backing uh, with your own party, but also be able to stand and say that you're independent of some of the more crazier elements of the GOP right now.
1: Tia, before we move on, one other element of this visit to Israel. Uh, The Jolt does report this morning that uh, Kemp visited Yad Vashem, which is the um, official Israeli uh, memorial to victims of the Holocaust. It's an extraordinarily somber, uh, moving uh, place to visit, And, and apparently it had a big impact on the governor uh, there's a quote uh, it, in The Jolt from him uh, in which he says, in a city that gives you so much hope, regardless of what religion you practice, there's also so much despair. I'm glad we got to see that our entire delegation was moved. So the, the, there's, there's that human element of all this. But there's also this other interesting element, Tia, which is that um, you know, donor, Jewish donors across the country tend to be democratic. But here in Georgia, there's a a Jewish community that is as open to uh, contributing to Republican campaigns as to Democratic campaigns. And certainly, as Kemp has traveled around Israel and done things like Yad Vashem, um, it does give him a certain kind of legitimacy, perhaps, uh, that uh, uh, Jewish donors might be looking for beyond, again, the human element of uh, Yad Vashem.
3: Yeah. I mean, I I mean, to me, that just goes back to the point earlier. You're making it as well, Bill, is that, you know, it can be both. It can be a governor being genuinely touched by this this site that honors those uh, killed in the Holocaust. But also knowing this helps him possibly with a segment of voters back in Georgia, um, you know, like any good. Po- and I'm not you know, I don't want us to think that like. Kemp is the only politician that would be able to calculate the 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 upsides of a foreign trip or the upsides of uh, of a trip like this. You know, like any any politician worth their salt figures out how things are going to play out, and sometimes that makes them move forward. Sometimes it makes them decide it's not worth it. Um, but yeah, I think there are there are political upsides to this trip his words, what he chooses to say about the trip, what pictures he chooses to post, all of that is just politics.
1: Patricia, before we take a break, one last comment from you.
0: One quick note about who's paying for all of this. Uh, We asked the governor's office because the governor is traveling with the first lady and his three daughters. (laughs) Um, And uh, the three members of the General Assembly are traveling with their spouses. And after the huge blow up about a uh, CODEL last winter that got a ton of criticism from us, we asked, well, who's paying for all this stuff? Um, The answer is that the state is paying for the governor and first lady to travel, but the expenses of his daughter are covered by the governor privately, and then the spouses of the members, as well as the members, are all sent a bill at the end of the trip. The members are not having their travel paid for either. So um, they are all sent a bill at the end of the trip with how much they owe the state of Georgia, and it's theirs to pay on their own.
1: All right. Um, Thank you all for uh, starting us off on, on the right foot on today's show. We're going to take a break right now and come back with more on Political Rewind. King Williams, Rick Dent, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell join us for today's Political Rewind. Tia, you're up there in the middle of all of the concerns about the debt ceiling. The president is back from his overseas trip, as I mentioned at the top of the show. He has a meeting scheduled today with Speaker McCarthy. They apparently talked by telephone while the president was on Air Force One yesterday, coming back. Um, But let me read you, Tia, as we start this part of the conversation with... Just a little bit of a story. The New York Times moved since we, uh, uh, at least I hadn't seen it before we came on the air. Um, uh, This is what they say. Even if a deal is struck before the last minute, the long uncertainty could drive up borrowing costs and further destabilize already shaky markets. It could lead to a pullback in investment and hiring by businesses when the U.S. economy is already facing elevated risks of a recession, and ham- hamstring the financing of public works projects more broadly a standoff could diminish long-term confidence in the stability of the US financial system with lasting repercussions. So Tia, we know how serious this crisis is and we also know how serious it is because CNN has begun running its countdown clock to June 1st which is when Janet Yellen says the government r- might run out of money as 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 crisis um, as this crisis looms it still appears that the republicans in the house and the white house are far apart
3: yes so um you know it's interesting to be here in washington and read the coverage and talk to really smart journalists who've been around for um you know the last one if you will and so the first thing is the June, there is no hard deadline, right? Because it depends, you know, it's just like when you hit your credit limit, it's not like your credit card says you will hit your credit limit on this day. It depends on how much you spend. And if you are able to spend less or you get some unexpected money that you can use, that affects, you know, your ability mm-hmm. to pay down your debt. So June one's is not a hard deadline, but it's an estimate, um, And I think for that reason, it's hard to really that's why the markets can start panicking early. Um, But that also means members of Congress think they can buy themselves some time because other estimates put the deadline a little bit later, like June 7th, June 8th. Um, Mm -hmm. That being said, it does seem right now that both sides are far apart. I will say that. The president and the speaker are supposed to meet today in person. They still have not said what time, which tells me that on both sides, um, they're not ready to meet without making sure they have something to meet about. Or perhaps something to say at the end of the meeting, not even necessarily a deal, but they don't want to meet for no reason. They definitely don't want Kevin McCarthy coming out of that meeting saying the White House isn't negotiating or they don't want President Biden coming out of that meeting saying, once again, Kevin McCarthy called him a liar in the Oval Office. So, yes, they're supposed to meet today. We don't know when. But that also means behind the scenes, those talks are continuing.
1: Rick, um, weigh in on this. I mean, one of the things we know that's happened here is that the Republicans in the House have loaded up the bill that they already passed as part of their negotiating uh, process, uh, which has um, very little to do with raising the debt ceiling. They've added an immigration uh, component to it. They've said that there must be a work requirement for um, people who are getting uh, uh, financial benefits from uh, the government. So, I mean, what we've got here now is a simple matter of raising the debt ceiling to accommodate money that has already been committed uh, being um, overshadowed by a political agenda that especially the far right Republicans in the House want to advance. Is that a fair statement
4: of what's happening here? Well, you know, I'm on today with three three journalists. They have to be more nuanced than I do. I would say what we're talking about is a debt charade. We were talking about the need for leadership and putting your office on the line. And what we have right now is you have the Taliban, right wing of the Republican party versus the spineless, weak, woke Democratic party. And middle America, which includes me, I think, I don't know about you guys, but it includes me, we get screwed. Are you telling me with that bloated, bloated federal government that the Republicans are going to draw the line and destroy our economy because they think we ought to have more work requirements for Medicaid and TANF and food stamps? Really? And at the same time, well, we need to give more money to the Pentagon, which can't even pass an audit, can't even pass a financial audit. And we have a president who's willing to negotiate with these people. And it is just mind-blowing. Like I said, I think middle America is stuck literally in the middle, and we've got these two factions willing to destroy our economy for really a charade.
3: So
0: I agree with Rick on the charade uh, part. I think that this is a um, a moment for both sides to message, to say, I'm taking a hard line. I'm not going to go along with this. I do think uh, President Biden has said, okay, I'm willing to talk about some spending cuts. However, I also need you to start talking about raising some taxes on billionaires. Um, I think Biden is taking the right, more reasonable approach because it is closer to the performance of most Americans and their daily lives who know that you have to um, have conversations with people in order to find an agreement. Um, I think the danger in this situation is that it would be so catastrophic if they really did let this go to a default, that most people are assuming that nobody in Washington is that dumb. It's very possible that plenty of people in Washington are that dumb. And we do have a big problem on our hands. Um, I think the market is factoring in the nobody's that dumb calculation and sort of just cooking along um and uh just doing what they do. Um the the problem is that we're gonna find out how dumb Washington is if they do let this get to an actual default. I don't feel like it's gonna happen, but I guess we'll all find out.
1: King, uh it's easy to uh frame this in terms of what happens to the stability of the financial markets and all I mean that's certainly what I just read from the New York Times, but but I, I think in many ways that distances the crisis from the everyday lives of people, the kind of people Rick's talking about. Here's what happens if the government goes into de- default: almost certainly, 60 million people won't get their Social Security checks. Um, food stamps uh, will be cut off. Tax refunds won't be coming back to people as quickly as uh, they need them uh, potentially. Um, there's no. Uh, there's no kind of remedial effort to figure out how to pay military salaries or federal worker uh, salaries. So this affects people's lives very directly if it, if it continues toward an impasse.
2: Yeah, it's one of those things where I actually do think this is generally bad politics in the sense that the largest voting block in pretty much every state in the US has been older people, people particularly who need social security, who use social security for their day-to-day lives. It seems to even be playing chicken with that, seems like one of the worst political lessons we've seen in the last couple of years. And I'm honestly surprised what the motivation is behind the scenes on the GOP to even push that going forward, because you talk about both uh, older residents who need those uh, benefits and also the military. And so it just seems like there's no real point in doing this. And also to the point of Patricia, um, it seems like the math isn't math on this one, right? You can't necessarily have uh, the debt ceiling talks if you're going to also talk about either lowering taxes or not necessarily implementing new taxes to cover those costs. So I don't know where they're going with this one. And maybe this is just a, a proxy for what we're going to see next year. And if it is, we're in a lot of trouble.
1: Um, Tia, I do think that um, it it is important before we move on to point out there are problems on the Democratic side of this as well as on the Republican side. On the Republican side, Kevin McCarthy has such a narrow margin, as we all know, uh, for his majority. And so he has to pay attention to what the far right is asking him to do in these negotiations. But on the left, uh, President Biden has said, well, you know, Maybe I would be willing to, um, you know, think about the possibility of some kind of work requirement. But of course, the Bernie Sanders, the AOCs of the world are absolutely pushing back on that idea, too. So there's intransigence on the Democratic side as well as the Republican side here.
3: Yes, but I don't want to both sides it. I think what Democrats are saying is President Biden, don't give away everything because House Republicans are willing to give nothing like there's a work requirements. Democrats are saying work requirements should be off limits, but they're willing to do budget cuts. They're willing to do a lot permitting reform. There are, there's a long list in that house bill. There's literally really the work requirements seem to be the one thing and just also sparing defense not necessarily if you spare defense and you spare medicare and medicaid and veterans the way republicans said we're not cutting we're not cutting veterans we're not cutting defense we're not cutting entitlements well if you say that the way republicans have that means you're talking about massive cuts to the little that remains because defense is a big part of the budget, and then if you add on those healthcare entitlements, that's most of the budget. So, yeah, I, yes, Democrats have tried to create a line in the sand, but that's because they're worried Biden is going to go too far because Republicans have been so rigid. Um, so, yes, there there are there are you know there, there's the far left and the far right, but the far right has said we will not bend at all. We, we're we not negotiating past what we passed. That is what we've heard from members on the far right. The far left has said, feel free to negotiate, but let's draw us a line somewhere. That's the difference.
1: Rick and then Patricia finishes off on this subject.
4: Look, you know, it was mentioned here and it's been in the coverage that the Biden strategy is about being the adult in the room being even-handed. And that's not President Biden's problem, and that's not the Democrats' problem. Biden's problem is he looks old and he looks weak. Democrats have always looked weak in the last 20, 30 years, probably since Bill Clinton. Republicans are always whipping them in Washington. And what they need is a president who will stand up for them. Now, a lot of people may hate Donald Trump, but 62 million Americans believe Donald Trump stands up for them. And what we're talking about right now is a president who is weak and who looks like he will give and give and give. And I don't think in the long run that helps President Biden. Some of his advisors believe that. But his problem, again, is being old and weak. And the reverse of that is strong and being a leader. Patricia finishes off. So,
0: okay, so I think I could go way down that rabbit hole. I'm going to instead <laughs> say what I was planning on saying <laughs> <clears throat> quickly. We have a huge huge debt problem in this country. A lot like many Americans, Tia was talking about the credit card. We have already committed, we are $31 trillion in debt. And that is increasing exponentially. That will eventually, uh, servicing the debt will eventually be the largest portion of the federal budget if somebody doesn't do something. And uh, I think that's where leadership is particularly called for right now that requires long-term budgeting, compromise, kind of a holistic approach to taking this problem seriously. Um, That seems like it has been such a heavy lift over the last 20 years that nobody's done it. Um, That's our real problem. That's why they're fighting about this. This isn't really about the debt ceiling. It's about the debt, and they should address the underlying problem rather than uh, the credit card payment on it.
1: All right. Um, thank you all for that. By the way, real quickly, Patricia, you're right. We're at a $31 trillion debt right now with more spending happening every day. And the borrowing cap right now is $31.3 trillion. So that's how close uh, we are to uh, a moment of potential default. All right. We're going to take a break. And by the way, I think Rick Net uh, opens up a conversation that we'll have on this show on a future date. We're going to talk a lot about Republican candidates uh, for president in the days ahead because Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott are both announcing officially this week. But I think Rick Dent raises a really interesting conversation we should have about how happy Democrats are with uh, uh, Joe Biden as their nominee for another term. But that's for another day. We're going to come back with more on today's political rewind. With the time we have left on today's show, I'm going to try to get to two more uh, subjects if I can. And so I'm going to start, Patricia, with you just briefly. You uh, wrote a column that spoke to an issue that we talked a good deal about on the show last week, but I think it's worth revisiting based on your column. And that's the notion that Brian Kemp, after signing the budget uh, last week, uh, told a number of agencies to, quote, disregard some 200-plus million dollars in spending. And you, in your column, say that uh, legislators were hit uh, by total surprise by this. You used the words shocked, disappointed, gut-punched, and other words that were much more obscene in nature, and no one seems to understand exactly what the governor is doing.
0: Yeah, and also take a look at where those cuts are coming um, in the chairman of the House Appropriations Committee's district, chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee district and House Speaker John Burns district. Uh, The truth is that uh, Lieutenant Governor um, Burt Jones had no spending in his district because he was focused on a hospital in his district (laughs) instead. So there's no spending there to cut. So um, and and all of these leaders Uh, supported Kemp in his primary, supported him in his general election, uh, voted yes on all of his priorities the last several years. And so um, I mean Kemp has scrapped with the General Assembly many times before, but it's been a while. They've been in this very harmonious state. Um, And the decision, it wasn't just the cuts, it's that they stood behind him as he signed the budget at a press conference at two o'clock and then five o'clock, an email hit their inboxes that said, by the way, that $6 million for the mental health facility in your district is not happening. And that even you had to read through this 33-page document to figure out like, wait, what happened to the thing? And you're like, oh, uh, was anybody going to tell me about that? So it's not just what was done, but how it was done, how it happened. And then the lack of follow-up after that. Um, uh, The governor's staff is following up with those members, um, but it was to a lot of their very close uh, projects that they cared about a ton. Um, and so they're going to have to work through this. This is not the end. I will tell you that.
1: All right. I just want to keep that on the table because we're going to be pursuing this. See if we can find out more about it. It certainly feels like a uh, Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump, I've said that twice now, Brian Kemp is feeling his oats and his power. Tia.
3: Yeah, to me, I don't, I don't have as much insight specifically into the the players like Patricia does, but on the outside looking in to me, this is the executive of the state showing who's boss. And unfortunately, there's always gonna be natural tension between the legislative and the executive branch, even when everyone's the same party, those in charge. And I think this was Kemp saying, hey, uh, General Assembly, I'm in charge. And he's daring them to call a special session and try to override him. Uh, To me, that's what I read into it again from the outside looking in. And I think this is less about the specific projects, even though Kemp did say, you know, here's why I'm vetoing this. Here's why I'm vetoing that to an extent with some of his decisions, he did have a veto message. But I think it's more of him because remember, there were things that the General Assembly did during the session that Kemp did not like. And he has no control over them for those that time. But now he's saying, hey, teach you a lesson.
1: All right. With our few minutes left, and we'll pursue this in more depth uh, tomorrow, uh, King, uh, in in a short while, uh, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, the one black Republican member of the United States Senate, will officially announce he's running for president of the United States. One of the things that I find fascinating about this is attending his official announcement will be the second-ranking member of the Republicans in the Senate, and that's Senator John Thune, who's putting his support behind Tim Scott, which makes you wonder whether the firewall for Donald Trump may be starting to at least give a little bit. Uh, King, what do you think about the possibility that a John Thune, has? I mean, that a Tim Scott has the potential to draw some uh, black voters who normally would be Democratic voters over to his side?
2: Uh, I don't think that's the case at all. What I do think is for potential GOP supporters who are maybe concerned with Tim Scott's record, and then others who want to necessarily have the proxy of the GOP advance on race-related issues. It feels a lot to me uh, reminiscent of what happened in the Reagan administration with a lot of Black people taking prominent positions, but not necessarily amounting to much. I would expect the same for Tim Scott, especially if Ron DeSantis' uh, campaign flames out. He could be the, the first black Republican president, and using a lot of optics to keep in would-be GOP voters, especially those who are non white
1: Rick, um, we know that Tim Scott is enormously popular among his colleagues in the Senate, partly because of his rather sunny disposition, and that's how he's running this campaign. As the happy warrior, kind of taking us back to the days of Ronald Reagan. It's morning in America. The question is whether the Republican Party has room for an optimistic <laughs> candidate for president.
4: Well, I think the answer would be that CNN town hall meeting. Did you see that? And did you see Donald Trump? Absolutely not. In fact, when I was watching Donald Trump um, engage the way he did, I was thinking um, about the Rocky movie when Apollo Creed is trying to pick Rocky, and his um, his staff member gets gets real close and says, "Walk away, baby. Walk walk away." <laughs> I, it, if you're thinking about taking on Donald Trump and taking on Donald Trump in a debate, I, it just seems to me like a suicide mission. Just a suicide okay, mission.
1: Okay, but we, I, we have very little time left, but Patricia and Tia, what, first, Patricia, what do you make of the fact that John Thune is stepping up for Tim Scott today?
0: Oh, I think John Thune just really genuinely likes Tim Scott and believes in him. And I would say... Nearly every Republican member of the Senate likes Tim Scott more than they like Donald Trump, but they fear Donald Trump and his voters more than they fear Tim Scott, and that is why Jonathan is the only one there today. It,
3: finish uh, yeah, and off. I think Tim, I think Tim Scott's a little bit safer to support as a Trump alternative. You know, DeSantis. If you support DeSantis. Um, Trump is going to probably be angrier about that than a Tim Scott. He's attacked Tim Scott a little bit ahead of this announcement, but not in the way he's attacked DeSantis as the person who's polling second. But I do agree with Patricia. I think people really do, you know, think Tim Scott's a great senator and would make a great leader. I don't know if any of them in their heart of hearts think he will be the Republican nominee. But I think I think if at the least they're saying if he were the Republican nominee, I'm
1: not. I think he would be a good one. All right. I think we have time for a very brief comment. Patricia, it has been conventional thinking that if too many Republicans get into the presidential field, it just accrues to the benefit of Donald Trump. It now looks like the field's growing every day, DeSantis announces later. Um, Very quickly, is that a correct analysis?
0: Yes, we've all seen this movie before.
1: Okay. Thank you. Out of time completely. Thank you for a great conversation. King Williams, Tia Mitchell, Rick Dent, and Patricia Murphy back with a brand new show again tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care, stay healthy, and be good to one another. Bye, everybody.